Welcome to the Human Reboot with me, Emma Last. We have uplifting, inspiring and diverse reboot stories from people sharing the courageous, honest, authentic and sometimes difficult life lessons. The Human Reboot will provide proven mentally flourishing formulas and practical tips to help you to live life to the full, giving you direction and hope. Make your mental fitness and well-being a daily priority. Learn to pause so that you can get clear and perform at your best. Switch off to switch on. It's time for your human reboot. On the Human Reboot podcast today, I have the very lovely Rachel Maunder. Rachel works with people who want to learn how to craft their stories for speaking, helping them to find and craft their stories for greater engagement and ultimately more business. She's an experienced coach and trainer and has developed her unique and simple story craft process to help others to do the same. She's an active member of the Professional Speaking Association and continually works to develop her own skills, both as a speaker and as a coach. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you, Emma. It's my absolute pleasure to be here. So please, would you be able to tell us a bit more about what you do? Yes, absolutely. I love what I do. And what I do, I work with people who probably are new to speaking, but not necessarily lacking in confidence about speaking. And I help them find and craft their stories for their presentations. So I work with a whole range of different people. But just to give you an example, so some, I've got two clients who, both of which have origins in a third world country, and they are running amazing projects in in their home countries, and are now suddenly finding themselves invited to speak at all these different summits about sustainability, global growth, and, and that kind of thing. So every time they're having to speak, They're needing to sort of adapt their content for a slightly different purpose and for a slightly different audience. So what I've done with both of those, and they're completely independent clients, they're not involved with each other at all, is we've gone through and woven their story of of why they're doing what they do and what it means to them and all of that into the story of the project, how, how it was set up, what it does, what the impact it has on the people that work in it, in the country that they work in, and also the bigger impact in in the world. But each time they're asked to speak, we sort of look at it and go through it again to think, okay, how can we get this message out today about sustainability, for example? Or how can we get the message out about good work? So it's really helping them do that. A lot of my clients are solo business owners that are beginning to realize that actually when you share part of your story, it's part of your personal brand as well and helps your potential clients see a little bit more of the human side of you and helps them make their choice about whether they want to work with you or whether they want to go and work with somebody else who does pretty much the same as what you do. So it's all of that. And I think what people come to me for is the crafting of the story primarily, because when you're speaking, if you're talking in a pub, with somebody and and telling them your story, you're probably going to go back and start at the very beginning and just take them through the whole history of it. But when you're actually giving a presentation to an audience, whether that's virtual or in the room, it's really, really important to find something, to have a compelling opening so that your audience is engaged from the outset. 
And also what can happen is that in the telling, it's so easy to take people down a rabbit hole of a part of the story that might have meant something to you as the speaker, but actually isn't relevant to the message you're wanting to give through your speaking. So that, that's kind of yeah what I do. So do you believe that everybody's got a story? We do indeed, Emma. And it's interesting you asked me that question because my own speaker journey started in terms of delivering something that I'd written myself about 10 or 12 years ago. I'd already been doing speaking. It's one of those threads when I look back through my whole career and business path. It's always been there. But initially, initially I spoke in court and then I was running training. So already delivering prepared content, as it were, which is very different from writing your own speech and and giving it. And when I started to do that, I noticed that the speakers that were doing really, really well had what I now call a big or a a macro story. They'd probably done something amazing. Um, They might have climbed a mountain, rode an ocean, that kind of thing. Or, of course, and I know a lot of the people that you have on this podcast come into this group, people that have come through a really life-challenging, sometimes life-threatening scenario and have that kind of story. And I, I really don't have either of those things, and it's not the kind of thing you can make up. So I used to think that I didn't have a story to share but that I thought I could get away with it because I knew I was a confident presenter. I could put good content together. I could have a good message, give a good call to action. And that was kind of the feedback I was getting. You know, yes, good content, well delivered, good calls to action. But we want to hear a bit more about you. We want to hear your story. And I would, I would always say, but I don't have a story. And people say, yes, you do. We all have a story. And so I was kind of stuck there thinking, yeah, but what the heck is it? And I, d- I did sort of dip back and, and find a couple of things that there are other people out there speaking about that similar sorts of things had happened to them, but it wasn't right for me. They just weren't right. And what happened for me was probably a gradual process, but it feels as if it was an overnight revelation, probably about two years ago, that actually we all sit on a mountain of ordinary everyday stories. You know, it can be something that happened this morning when you were in the queue at the supermarket. It could be something that happened on the best holiday you've ever been on. We're living in a story almost every day, really, of some description. And the point about those stories, as long as they illustrate a point that you're wanting to make, they are every bit as valuable as those other bigger stories that I mentioned. And so my answer is absolutely yes, we all have loads. And for anybody else who's listening, who is the owner of a small business, the other really powerful story is the story of how and why you've come to be doing what you're doing. And that's another one I think we often overlook because we tend to think, oh, but you know, I just fell into what I'm doing, really. It wasn't ever a conscious plan or anything like that. Or, you know, somebody who's perhaps a lawyer might have thought, well, I always wanted to be a lawyer from the age of 15, and that's all I've ever been. There's always a story there that's got some learning. There will have been some turning points. So, yes, we all have loads of stories, Emma. Oh, and I've heard one of yours before as well. So we've talked quite a lot about extraordinary stories, haven't we? Yes. Please, would you just, before we get started on the reboot, just share with us your lovely story about the day that you escaped from school? (laughs) Yeah, well, I was only, I was four years old because I'd literally, in those days, when I was that age, you started school in the term in which you were going to turn five. And I'm a June baby, so I started after Easter. 
So I'd only been there two or three weeks and, and I was enjoying it. You know, I was the third of three children, so I was more than ready to go to school when it was my turn. But what happened was, again, I know this doesn't happen in schools now, but our toilet block at the primary school was out in the playground. So if you needed to go from the classroom, you had to go out of the building on your own and, and out to the loo block and make your way back in. And so after I came out of the loo block, I looked around and there was nobody about, not even the caretaker. And I just thought, well, I could go home. Who's going to stop me? And off I went. And the point that I tell that story to illustrate is that as a four-year-old, seeing an opportunity, I didn't give a single thought to the fact that I had four roads to cross. It was a 10-minute walk from the school to my house with four roads to cross. I didn't even think, would my mum be at home or not, which she wasn't. I didn't think about how worried people would be or that my class teacher may or may not, I don't know whether she ever got into trouble for not keeping a close enough eye on me. I I didn't give any of that a thought. And my point was that as we get older, particularly as women, I think, we start to put all those blocks in. Oh, well, maybe I shouldn't because I might get run over. Well, what would I do if my mum's not at home? So yeah, that's the little story that I tell. And, and I tell loads of little things like that. They're inconsequential. Some of them are quite funny. What then will happen? Somebody else would say, well, yeah, I walked out of school as well. Or, or I remember doing this when I was four. Or, you know, it, it will jog a memory for somebody of, of something that they used to do when they're younger that they wouldn't do now because they'd overthink it. So that that's the purpose of those kinds of stories, just jogging, creating a connection with the people that you're speaking to. And it certainly did make me giggle that. <laughs> and it did really get the point across about sometimes that we do put barriers in our own way. And that yeah. wider thinking goes from, you know, this huge world that we want to kind of go and conquer. And sometimes it's become smaller and smaller with yeah. time. Yeah, exactly. So that leads us beautifully on to your reboot story. So please, could you tell us about a time when you've had to navigate some challenging or or changing times or a point where you really feel that you've had to kind of pause, self-reflect and make some changes and take some key learns from it? Yes, I had several points that I could have shared today, Emma, but the one I think that is probably the most relevant for your podcast is one that happened probably was sort of 35 to 40 years ago. So it's a long time ago. I was living on the outskirts of London, working for one of the inner London boroughs, loved my job, living in my own flat that I'd recently bought, had a very busy social life. So on the surface, everything was absolutely fine. And I was really surprised myself to wake up on a Monday morning feeling I can't get out of bed today. And I'm not somebody that's prone to that kind of feeling at all. It really took me by surprise. And I knew that therefore it was something a bit different, but I didn't quite understand what it was. And I somehow knew intuitively that it wasn't just a day off that I needed. I needed, you know, maybe a a week or whatever. So I, I phoned the office and spoke to my line manager who happened to be a woman, and I I don't know what the rules are now, but at the time you could self-certificate for up to eight days, I think it was. And she said, well, what do you think is wrong? And I said, well, I just feel absolutely exhausted. I don't know what it is. I just can't come in. And and she was surprised because, as I say, that that's not something that people expect 
from me or, or that I did either. And she, she took her line manager's hat off for a moment and said, Rachel, I would just advise you if you are taking time off for something that is essentially emotional or a mental health issue, um, that you go and see a doctor so that if anybody comes back on this, you have been to a doctor and taken it seriously, which was the furthest thing from my thoughts, to be honest. But I thought, okay, well, I better take her advice. So I did. Luckily for me, I think, because I saw it as a tick box exercise, really, to have been to see the doctor, because I thought, oh, he's probably going to offer me some antidepressants or something, which I absolutely do not need or want to take. But actually what he said was, what are you hoping I can do for you? So I was so taken aback by that. I said, well, I was hoping you might be able to refer me for some counselling, which is what happened. I had to wait a little while to get that counselling appointment. I was living in the south of London at the time and working for the London Borough of Southwark, which is where the Maudsley Hospital is. So in a sense, it was our local hospital. But that kind of freaked me out a little bit because um, in, in the south of England, the Maudsley Hospital is one of the sort of major psychiatric units it's literally across the road from king's college hospital so it's a big teaching psychiatric hospital but it kind of freaked me out that that's where i was going for these counseling sessions but so i went along went to my first session didn't know what to expect i would never been for anything like that before and just sat there for a while and there was the counselor plus he had a student sitting with him and they didn't say anything and i thought well this is a bit weird so eventually I said, are you expecting me to start? And he said, oh, you expected something else. And <laughs> anyway, in the end, and I, I don't know where this came from. It was the first time it had even come into my head. But I heard myself saying, yes, I am absolutely exhausted from trying to be my, like my sister. And that really took me aback. So my sister, two and a half years older than me, we are very, very good friends and very, very close and kind of always have, have been. But she was always that um, sweet, kind, gentle person. I was a bit more feisty, a bit more of a go-getter, a um, bit more outspoken. I was the sporty one, all of that stuff. And my dad used to nickname, I don't know why, Hard Annie, but he used to call me Hard Annie. And it was certainly in his eyes that I felt I fell very short of, of those qualities that my sister had. And everybody loved my sister. She was always nice. Whereas, you know, sometimes I could perhaps be a little bit awkward as a teenager because I would come out and say what I thought. Whereas, of course, she never really did that. She, I guess she knew when to be quiet as well, because it wasn't <laughs> that she necessarily thought any differently from me, particularly on politics and things like that. But she knew it wasn't worth worth the squeeze, as it were, to say it. But yeah, so, so that whole episode kind of started me on my journey to find who I was, I suppose, because what I realised through those counselling sessions was, was that I didn't need to be like my sister. I was fine as I was. And I understand that on an intellectual level. And of course, there is that lovely quote saying you can only be you because everybody else is taken. But, you know, it's uh, it's an ongoing journey. There are still times where I sort of feel well, many times where I still don't feel I'm enough, you know, am I nice enough? Interestingly, once I started to sort of look at myself in a different way, I am kind, I am gentle, I do get upset at things, and sometimes even more so than my sister, ironically. But it just, those weren't any of the things that I were ever noticed in me, and certainly not that I was celebrated for. I know, it's really 
really challenging, isn't it? Because I know that we've had conversations with a mutual friend and, you know, she said that like with she had three boys when they went into school, that whole comparison piece, they used to say to, you know, I think it was the youngest one, you're nothing like your older brother, are you? you know, because he was different. So it's just like always comparing mm. and, and it's often not intentional, but I suppose it's the label thing, isn't it? All over again, putting labels on things and also encouraging us in a indirect to compare ourselves to others. Yes. And I, I think there definitely is that comparison thing for children, but also that thing that if one is the sporty, clever one, then those qualities can't also be attributed to the other children in the family, unless they all, you know, might say, oh, they're all sporty and clever kids. But generally speaking, it's like, oh, well, you know, with girls, one might be the clever one and one might be the pretty one kind of thing. And I know I'm over-exaggerating there, but that's how I felt, that because my sister had all those qualities, and I suppose... Yeah, I mean, I definitely did have them, but maybe I hid them as a child. I, you know, I really, I don't know. I can't get much more insight into what I was like as, as a sort of, certainly a primary school age child. But yeah, it, it was just interesting, I think, how, how two children in the same family can grow up with different beliefs about themselves. Yeah, I think it's really interesting when you start kind of looking at that sort of sibling dynamic and also the family dynamic. Yeah. And also the effects that people have on you when you are of, you know, a certain age. It's almost like we, our brains are made to protect us. And sometimes some of the things that are said to us that are meant to care for us are meant to protect us maybe from the adults, maybe parents, teachers, etc. around us actually kind of are stored in that data bank really of things that are perhaps you know an alarm system really you know that can sometimes when we're older can make us have these sort of limiting beliefs about ourselves yeah and I think too we have to remember that with limited experience that we have as children we take on comments that might have been said in passing might have been said on a bad day but we take them and they go really really deep really deeply. Whereas as adults, and when we sort of explore and get interested in human psychology and so on, as as I know you, you do, Emma, you start to think, well, actually, that's about him or her. That's not about me. And I know that's just their way of saying things. They don't mean it to come across in that way. But as children, we haven't got that additional context to add. So if somebody says something, whether it's that classic comment of a teacher, oh, you'll never make anything of your life, you take it on board. And sometimes it can go to a core level and always stay with you, can't it? Yeah. um, And this is why I suppose bullying is something that can be so damaging in terms mm -hmm. of mental health, you know, and kind of can stay with us uh, and impact our confidence for, you know, many years to come. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of bullying type behavior, if that makes sense, it may not be intentional and it may, and it depends on where our mindset is at the time when we were a child as well, as to whether we interpret it as something that is deemed to be bullying or not, Mm. or whether it's deemed to be just something that we are very sensitive to. Yes. No, you're right. And I mean, there was, you know, and it wasn't as if I, didn't get a sense of being loved or anything like that. It was almost, because most of this used to come from my dad, and it was almost as if he was proud of that about me. 
but not quite. So it wasn't as if, you know, I, I was definitely the less loved child or anything like that. But I, I was puzzled by it because I knew it, it wasn't quite right that yeah. I was hard Annie or, or whatever. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's curious. And you can never unpick these things completely because, you know, you're trying to delve back now with your adult mind and remember. And of course, I can't remember it all completely accurately anyway. And whereas my sister, bless her, has probably never really questioned who she is and has never needed to. So the importance of living as your authentic self. Yes. How does that play into your life now or how how has that shaped your... Good question. I, I think it's shaped what I've been doing, certainly for the last... Well, I mean, I suppose it's this whole curiosity about why we are as we are. The first thing I wanted to study when I was doing my A-levels and that, I was aiming to study psychology. So I've always had this interest in what makes us different. I didn't, in the end, study psychology as such, but my first proper job, if you like, was working with juvenile offenders out of a curiosity about what is it that goes on that makes, and particularly this thing of one child in a family decides that they're going to be an offender. I mean, they don't consciously decide it. Of course they don't, but others don't. So there was all of that. But on the back of that, I then trained and became a counsellor and then sort of became a coach. So always that thing of wanting to help people explore why they are as they are. And then as as coaching came more into my life, I don't think it was any accident that that sort of came into my life at the time when my own children were very, very small. And you'll identify with this, I'm sure, Emma, as as most mums will. Counselling, if you like, looks back to see why we are as we are, whereas coaching looks forward from where we are and how are we going to get where we want to get. And when you're busy with young children in particular, actually, we haven't got time to look back and worry about why we're in this pickle that we're in. It's like, how are we going to get out of it? We want (laughs) to move forward. Um, And it kind of really reflected where I was in my own life in that sense. Also, of course, when you look back onto the counselling thing, there's more of a pathology with it, whereas coaching is, it doesn't have that stigma, if you like, which it sadly is still around for some people, although I think it's improving massively. But I think there is still a little bit of a stigma in some people's minds around counselling and the mental health treatments and so on. But really, my coaching has always wanted to, it's always been around wanting people to make one change to feel better about themselves. Sort of almost by mistake, if you like, I ended up as a, a counsellor slash coach with women who were on a, you know, wanting to change their relationship with food. And one of the things that I really, really worked really hard with them was take it as something simple like accepting a compliment. So I've always been around that sort of feeling better about yourself and, and accepting yourself for who you are, uh, making the best of yourself. I kind of moved from that into the world of of women in business. So I I ran networking groups with the Athena Network for eight years. And that, again, was about helping women grow into their confidence to step up, run their businesses, be the people they always knew they could be, that kind of thing. That's where the presentation skills training started to come in. And then I moved to working with women in the industries and professions where they're underrepresented at leadership. Again, wanting women to step up and be on an equal plate with the men. Never about 
wanting, you know, men pushed sideways or anything, because I could always see the balance between the masculine energy and the feminine energy, but just really wanting women to be the best they could be. And then that's kind of now shifted again into this story coaching, which is I know I know is where I will stay because it is your story is what makes you you. And when you share your story, and, and this is the same for you and, and for every listener to this episode, when you share your story, somebody else needs to hear it and they will make a change in their life because they'll identify with what you say. That change might only be a tiny, tiny little step but it, who knows where that can trigger, what that can trigger and, and where it leads to. So, yeah, it is all about being that authentic you. Be proud of your story because it will help somebody else. Yeah. And also when you look back at your story and you look at what you've overcome in your life as well, often that as much as those times might be really have been really challenging, they're also something for, that you can be really proud of as well. And you can kind of put that in your kit bag and tick it off and saying, you know, I am resilient, you know, because yeah. I've overcome this, this and this, or I've adapted in this way. You know, yes. In this way. Yes. One of the things that got said to me when I was managing the weight loss program, because weight weight has never been a big issue for me. And one of the managers said to me, Rachel, you'll do a whole lot better when you stop trying to identify with your clients around the times that you think you overeat. Because trust me, it's a fraction compared to what what their behaviour around food. Because remember that what they want to learn from you is how to stay slim and you know how to do that, however subconsciously you're doing it. And, and that's what kind of always stayed with me because in terms of when we're working with our clients, we have come through a journey. We therefore have some tools to pass on to them because we've learned how to come through that scenario. Oh, well, and the next part of the human reboot, we always ask how you switch off to switch on. So how do you switch off so that you can perform at your best? Okay, I, th- I think I'm a master of switching off, Emma. I was I'm, at heart, I'm a lazy git. So I have absolutely no problem at all of switching off on a Friday. I like to finish by three on a Friday. It doesn't always happen, particularly in the winter on a wet, windy Friday afternoon. But very, very rarely will I open up a laptop to do work over the weekend. And if I do, it's either because my business manager is trying to sort a problem out and she chooses to work at the weekend and kind of needs some input from me, or because I've got a a ridiculously busy week coming up and and it would help me to just spend an hour or two doing something on a Sunday morning or something. But generally speaking, I don't. Somehow or other, it's always been within me, the value of walking. And, you know, I listen to your episode with Heather and and I walk with Heather quite often. And I walk with lots of other people that I I don't know. I think that's something I've always done. My mum used to take us out for regular walks. And I've always, at some subconscious level, always recognised the value of being outside and walking. And I mentioned before that I was always quite sporty. I still play tennis up until lockdown. I played squash a couple of times a week. I don't know if I'll go back to that, but certainly play tennis. I've got a bike that I love to ride. Occasionally I'll go for a run. So I do all those things. And, you know, I like a good drama on the TV. I'm running out at the moment because obviously this is being recorded as we're coming out of lockdown. But yeah, though all those things allow me to just switch off. And being around people, I I like to be around people, you know, just catch up with with them and see what they're up to. So that's my sort of things for switching off. Fabulous. And 
it wouldn't be right without me asking you if you have any how-to tips on um, how you live life to the full. So your personal flourishing formula for life. Ooh, one, one of my main one, I guess, is that I'm a Gemini and therefore I can always see the other side of a situation, which mostly is a huge blessing and a huge asset, I think. But it can be a curse because sometimes my friends don't want to look at the other person's side of the thing when when they're upset with somebody. But therefore, my message would always be there's always another way of looking at a situation. So whether that's about what was going on for somebody when they said something really hurtful or, or did something really hurtful, or whether it's a situation where you feel you're up against a wall, there's always that question, how else could I see this? What else you know, what else could I do to get myself out of this? So that I think has served me really, really well. And, and I would encourage people to, to take that sort of view. How else can I see this? What might somebody else say to me? What else might I say to somebody else that was in this situation? Because there is always more than one way of looking at a situation. But the other thing is, is something that I, I used to say to my kids, particularly regarding sort of education and stuff and, and job applications, is keep saying yes until you get to a stage where you need to give a no, because who knows what opportunities keep coming as a result of that. I think that's great advice. And then you can keep growing as a person, can't you? Yeah. But knowing your boundaries is also important as well. So knowing when to say no to (laughs) depends what kind of person you are. (laughs) But yeah, great, great advice. So is there any anyone or any community or any books, podcasts, etc., that you feel have been a key part of your journey that you might want to share with our listeners? Ah, gosh, there's been so many, and I'm not a great one at remembering titles and things like that. But yes, there will have definitely been a podcast that I listen to regularly at the moment. And again, I know that you've interviewed Amy Rowlandson. I listened to her focus on why, but podcasts are fairly new to me. So they're part of my later journey. I mentioned that I was a regional director with the Athena Network. That's been a massive part of my journey. It's really 2010 when I started doing that, saw a huge, steep, steep curve in my self-development and and self-journey, you know, my self-journey of of finding myself and, and doing what I really love to be doing. And I, although I'm not a regional director anymore, I'm a very active member of that. You mentioned in my bio, I'm a member of the Professional Speaking Association. That's a great organization. It's like an extended family feel to that. Books I have read and listened to many. It's interesting, actually, the very first sort of self-development book. And, and I again, this goes back years and years. And I listened to it on the old fashioned audio tapes. And it was a book by an American called Scott Peck, and it was called The Road Less Travelled. And I picked up so many tips from that. But it was interesting because last summer I found myself in a bookshop and and noticed a copy of it on the shelf. And I thought, oh, I wonder what it would be like to revisit that and and to read. So I bought a copy and only got about a third of the way through it. It just wasn't inspiring me the second time round, which I found interesting because I think, you know, Certain books resonate with us at certain times, don't they? Um, it's a little bit like that saying, you know, the right teacher appears when we're ready to learn the lesson kind of thing. A book that I'm currently reading now, which I listened to all 24 hours of the audio 
of last year is Becoming by Michelle Obama. I'm not saying it's affected my personal development, but I find it an absolutely stunningly written book. And of course, she does the audio herself on on the audio version. But yeah, I mean, I, I read all sorts of books. I get more from talking to people, though. But yeah, all sorts of influence me and I, I wouldn't want to single out too many, I think. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Human Reboot podcast and for sharing your story, which I know you haven't shared with many people before. And, you know, just really showing us about the importance of being your authentic self. So thank you so much, Rachel. You're very welcome, Emma. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Human Reboot podcast. I'm Emma Last. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star podcast review and visit thehumanrebootmovement.com where you can find downloadable free resources, sign up to my mailing list or connect with me on social. So that's thehumanrebootmovement.com. Let's switch off so we can switch on. It's time for your human reboot.